The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Today afternoon news, I interview council member Paul Koretz from the 5th District, who is also running to be the next LA City Controller. So stay tuned. Let's go over some headline news from over the weekend and this morning. Former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick says he's planning to publicly release some documents requested by the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Carrick worked alongside his longtime friend, Rudy Giuliani, a former attorney for former President Donald Trump, in the weeks after the, the presidential election to find any evidence of voter fraud that would swing it for Trump. There is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. President Joe Biden says he supports making an exception to the Senate filibuster rule in order to pass voting rights legislation. Since Democrats won a slim majority in Congress, Republicans have blocked several Democratic-sponsored bills that seek to expand voting access and aim to end voter suppression. That's led some progressive Democrats and activists to demand an end to the filibuster rule, which requires 60 votes to advance most legislation in order to pass federal voting rights protections. Pope Francis called for vaccine fairness in his Christmas message. He called the pandemic a complex crisis, which has tested social relationships and increased tendencies of withdrawal. Our capacity for social relationships is sorely tired, Pope Francis said in his traditional message at the Vatican. Speaking from the balcony overlooking the square, Francis urged people to work together to tackle the pandemic. He added, open hearts to ensure the necessary medical care and vaccines in particular, are provided to those people who need them most. Repay those who generously devote themselves to caring for family members, the sick, and the most vulnerable in our midst. The Omicron COVID-19 variant is now the most dominant strain in the U.S., accounting for over 73% of new coronavirus cases, less than three weeks after the first was reported, according to estimates posted Monday by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For the week ending December 18, Omicron accounted for 73.2% of cases, with Delta making up an additional 26.6%. The week prior, ending December 11, Omicron was estimated at just 12.6% of circulating virus, and in the first week of December, Omicron accounted for about 1% of new cases. And I want to start by acknowledging how tired, worried, and frustrated I know you are. I know how you're feeling. For many of you, this will be the first or even the second Christmas where you look across the table, be an empty kitchen chair there. Tens of millions have gotten sick. We've all experienced upheaval in our lives. But while COVID has been a tough adversary, We've shown that we're tougher. 
Tougher because we have the power of science and vaccines that prevent illness and save lives. And tougher because of our resolve. So that, let me answer some questions that lay uh, out the steps the Vice President and I are taking to prepare for the rising number of cases experts tell us we can expect in the weeks ahead. First, how concerned should you be about Omicron, which is now the dominant variant in this country and it happened so quickly? The answer is straightforward. If you're not fully vaccinated, you have good reason to be concerned. You're at a high risk of getting sick. And if you get sick, you're likely to spread it to others, including friends and family. <clears throat> the unvaccinated have a significantly higher risk of ending up in a hospital <clears throat> or even dying. Almost everyone who has died from COVID-19 in the past many months has been unvaccinated. Unvaccinated. But if you're, on, if you're among the majority of Americans who are fully vaccinated, and especially if you've gotten the booster shot, that third shot, you're much, you have much, much less reason to worry. You have a high degree of protection against severe illness. But because Omicron spreads so easily, we'll see some fully vaccinated people get COVID, potentially in large numbers. There'll be positive cases in every office, even here in the White House, among the, among the vaccinated, among the vaccinated from, from Omicron. But these cases are highly unlikely to lead to serious illness. Vaccinated people who get COVID may get ill, but they're protected from severe illness and death. That's why you should still remain vigilant. <clears throat> According to our doctors, even if you're fully vaccinated, you should wear a mask when indoors and in public settings. Wearing a mask provides extra protection for you and those around you. And I know some Americans are wondering if you can safely celebrate the holidays with your family and friends. The answer is yes, you can. If you and those you celebrate with are vaccinated, particularly if you've gotten your booster shot. If you are vaccinated and follow the precautions that we all know well, you should feel comfortable celebrating Christmas and the holidays as you planned it. You know, you've done the right thing. You can enjoy the holiday season. And thanks to the progress on vaccinations this fall, we've gone from nearly 90 million adults in July who had not even started their vaccination process to fewer than 40 million today. <clears throat> Still too many, but down from 90 to 40. All these people who have not been vaccinated, you have an obligation to yourselves, to your families, and quite frankly, I know I'll get criticized for this, to your country. Get vaccinated now. It's free. It's convenient. I promise you, it saves lives. And I honest to God believe it's your patriotic duty. Another question folks are asking is, what can you do to make yourself and your family feel safer and be safer? The answer is simple. Get your booster shot. Wear a mask. Our doctors have made it clear, booster shots provide the strongest of protections. Unfortunately, we still have tens of millions of people who are eligible for the booster shot but have not yet gotten it. They've gotten the first two shots, but they've not gotten the booster. Folks, the booster shots are free and widely available. Over 60 million Americans, including 62% of eligible seniors, our most vulnerable group, have gotten their booster shots. I got my booster shot as soon as they were available. And just the other day, former President Trump announced he had gotten his booster shot. 
It may be one of the few things he and I agree on. People with booster shots are highly protected. Join them. Join us. It's been six months or more since my second shot. If it's been six months or more for your second shot when I got my booster, you can get yours today. If you've been six months or more since your second shot. Another question that folks are asking is, are we going back to March 2020? Not just last March 2021, but March 2020, when the pandemic first hit. <clears throat> That's what I keep getting asked. The answer is absolutely no, no. Here are three big differences between then and now. One, number one, the first one, more than 200 million Americans have been fully vaccinated. In March of 2020, no one was fully vaccinated. What that means is today, as cases, a case of COVID-19 for fully vaccinated and boosted person will most likely mean no symptoms or mild ones similar to the common respiratory viruses. <clears throat> Over 200 million Americans should have a peace of mind that they did not have in March of 2020. They're protected from hospitalization and they're protected from death. Second point, we're prepared today for what's coming. In March of 2020, we were not ready. Today, we stockpiled enough, we stockpiled enough gowns, masks, and ventilators to deal with the surge of hospitalizations among the unvaccinated. Today, we're ready. And as I'll explain in a few minutes, we're going to be reinforcing our hospitals, helping them. Number three, we know a lot more today than we did back in March of 2020. For example, last year, we thought the only way to keep your children safe was to close, your, close our schools. Today, we know more and we have more resources to keep those schools open. We, you can get five to 11-year-olds vaccinated, a <clears throat> tool we didn't have until last month. Today, we don't have to shut down schools because of a case of COVID-19. Now, if a student tests positive, other students can take the test and stay in the classroom if they're not infected, rather than closing the whole school or having to quarantine. We can keep our K-12 schools open. That's exactly what we should be doing. So, folks, let me summarize. We should all be concerned about Omicron, but not panicked. If you're fully vaccinated, and especially if you got your booster shot, you are highly protected. And if you're unvaccinated, you're at a higher risk of getting severely ill from COVID-19, getting hospitalized, and even dying. So the best thing is to get fully vaccinated and get your booster shot. And no, this is not March of 2020. 200 million people are fully vaccinated. We're prepared. We know more. We just have to stay focused. So that's where we stand. Now, let me tell you about the additional steps I'm ordering today to take on what is coming. I know you've heard a lot of this in the news already this morning. Three weeks ago, I laid out a COVID-19 action plan for this winter that prepared us for this moment. Today, we're making the plan even stronger. First, we're setting up our vaccination and booster efforts. We're stepping it up significantly. In the past two weeks, we've seen the highest vaccination rates since last spring. And we aren't as vaccinated as a country as we should be, though. That's why we have added 10,000 new vaccination sites on top of the 80,000 sites that are already we, had, we already had in place.
and even more will open in January. I know there's some parts of this country where people are very eager to get their booster, where it's harder to get an appointment, excuse me. <clears throat> so starting this week, I'll be deploying hundreds more vaccinators and more sites to help get the booster shots in people's arms. I've ordered FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to stand up new pop-up vaccination clinics all across the country where you can get that booster shot. We've opened, <coughs> excuse me, we've opened FEMA vaccination sites in Washington State and New Mexico recently as cases have increased. And today, I'm directing FEMA to stand up new sites in areas where there is a high demand. These steps are going to help us add more, more and more booster appointments and over the, just over the next few weeks. I also want to say a word to parents. If your children are not vaccinated, please get them vaccinated. If you're a parent, understandably, who waited to see how the first shots went with other kids before getting your own kid vaccinated, you can stop waiting. Six million children in our country, ages 5 to 11, are vaccinated. Get your children protected today, now. And for those parents out there who have a child that's too young to be vaccinated, that is under the age of five, I know this can still be a scary time. But one thing, one thing you can and must do while we await vaccines for children under five, get yourself fully vaccinated and boosted, as well as those around you your children, your caregivers, your siblings. It's critical to mask up in public indoor places. We know that our youngest children have only rarely been impacted by serious COVID-19 case, uh, COVID cases, but they can be further protected if they're surrounded by vaccinated people. And again, to folks who are not vaccinated, you may think you're putting only yourself at risk, but it's your choice. 837,671 people have died from COVID-19 in the United States, 76,343 in the state of California alone. Worldwide, 5.3 million people have died from the coronavirus so far. Amid the spread of Omicron and increased holiday gatherings and travel, the number of new COVID-19 cases in Los Angeles County jumped to nearly 10,000 on Friday, the highest number in 11 months. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about this strange dichotomy that exists in our society where it just seems like our media and our society and the press, uh, a lot of the coverage is geared toward a very small percentage of Americans, maybe 10%, probably less, uh, who do really well, have great income, uh, and are invested in the stock market and have you know properties, etc. Uh, and I don't mean just a house, but multiple properties or maybe uh, super high-end properties. Because if you're just watching the news or you're going through social media and looking at the news stories that come out and even just headlines... There's so much about um, uh, the stock market and how well it's doing and the real estate, you know, keeps going up and it's so healthy and etc. And I just think, well, 
that's not the majority of Americans. <laughs> it makes uh, it makes you think, uh, you know, why is there so much coverage of all of this? But it also brings me to the next thing, which is this this thing going around that uh, oh, there are so many jobs available now, and people don't want to work them. Well, <laughs> I think that's absurd. Um, people do want to work them, but they want to work in places where one, they feel safe. Uh, and two, they want to make a living wage. I think Americans are starting to wake up that for so many decades, we've not worked for living wages and we've had to, you know, just uh, struggle to make ends meet. And uh, wages and salaries have not gone up much, um, you know, in, in compared to inflation in the last like three decades. Uh People don't want to be work tell you know uh, bank tellers for you know thirteen fourteen dollars an hour. Um, about maybe five or six year, uh, months ago, and I think I've mentioned this on the show, MIT did a study that concluded that someone making minimum wage cannot afford a one bedroom apartment in any of the fifty states. Now imagine that. You cannot get a one-bedroom apartment if you're making minimum wage in any of the 50 states. We're not talking about California or New York or Connecticut or uh, Massachusetts. We're talking about any state. And so, you know, why? Because salaries for the working poor, working class, middle class, and even some uh, upper middle class have not gone up much. But what has gone up is the pay and the salaries of corporate executives, their bonuses, uh, and what the shareholders take home. So when some of these corporations, and even not corporations, but larger companies, bellyache about minimum wage going up, you know, they will use the defense that, oh, well, we, we're not going to be able to hire as many people, and that's bad for the economy if you raise the minimum wage. Well, they could if they wanted to, but what they don't want to do is they don't want to take any less in their bonuses. They don't want to take less in their um, in their salaries. You know, they want to have the you know the the three million five million annual salaries and a vacation home and a second vacation home and uh, X Y Z because uh, they're not willing to. Um, do anything to at least close, you know, close to even out the inequality in uh, in the America's uh, workforce. And then there is there is uh, imagine this: there's a 22 year old, 23 year old that graduates from college, and you know, what's the first job they're going to be offered um, with just a under you know undergrad uh, degree, even a master's degree? Maybe they can barely afford a one-bedroom apartment, but then they have student debt. They have debt to, to um, start to pay. And so it brings us to why on earth is education so expensive in America, the wealthiest nation in the world by far, when so many other nations, almost every European nation, uh, has free education for its people. Why is it that Denmark and Norway and Belgium and Finland and Iceland can have 
better education system for people, never mind everything else, like healthcare, and that we have to deal with a 23-year-old walking out of college with 60, 80, 100 or above um, in student loans and uh, and be able to, you know, work just a job just to have a one-bedroom apartment. So I think that's one of the things that, that Americans are sort of waking up to and realizing that they don't want to... Um, they don't want to work uh, for wages that are unfair. Uh, they're waking up to that. And so where, you know, companies need to step up and corporations need to step up um, and, you know, just look at where they're at, their neighborhood and what the cost of living is. And I'm not even talking about the inflation that's happening right now. I mean, this is pre-inflation. you know inflation. Just talking about, you know, up until, let's say, two, three months ago before the inflation was so bad. So that's what the challenge is. So I am definitely a supporter of uh, a minimum of $15 for the national minimum wage and other states setting it at even higher, uh, such as California and New York and, you know, Florida and uh, Colorado, etc., because there is no other way to um, to combat that. And, of course, this also leads to some of the challenges we have with the unhoused. You know, this myth that everyone who's unhoused is, you know, is mentally ill. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There should be no stigma. Or they are uh, drug addicts and alcoholic, which, again, that's... Uh, there should be no stigma for that. We should have services and help for people who are who are struggling with addiction and substance abuse. But even that's a myth that everyone has those challenges. There's also a lot of people who just finally get priced out and they can't afford um, to live on the salary that they have and they choose to sleep in their car. But they work, they go to work, but they're sleeping in a car. When just in Los Angeles, if you... <laughs> If you can rent a one-bedroom apartment for $2,000 a month, uh, that's a big deal. I mean, you won the uh, jackpot because it's that's what the prices are now. And I'm not even talking about L.A. proper, like Hollywood, West Hollywood, Santa Monica, Brentwood, uh, none of that. Rent is way higher there. But even like parts of the valley and uh, south of sort of downtown and, and east, you know, $2,000 and up is a one bedroom. So uh, of course we're gonna have people who are unhoused. Um, so people are sort of choosing to become gig workers or start their own businesses because they just don't wanna work for corporations that are giving them pittance and yet uh, the boss is taking home, you know, sometimes up to seven figure salaries. So there you have it. Let's get blunt. Let's put the focus back on uh, the 1% uh, and what they're not willing to give up and the greed of the 1% and these corporations and stockholders and uh, where a, a big part of our problems come from. Let's get blunt. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego County, and globally at kpfk.org.
Councilmember Paul Koretz has represented Los Angeles's 5th District since 2009. Born in the San Fernando Valley, Councilmember Koretz helped lead the effort to incorporate the new city of West Hollywood in 1984. In 2000, he was elected to the California State Assembly, representing the 42nd Assembly District that included much of City of LA's 5th District. While serving in the State Assembly, he authored over 70 bills to protect workers and their families, fought for LGBTQ equality, and the recognition of the Armenian Genocide. Councilmember Koretz is running to be the next Los Angeles City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. His endorsements are way too many to list, but a few include the Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, Unite Here Local 11 Hospitality Workers Union, AIDS PAC, Councilmember Kevin DeLeon, and the iconic labor leader and human rights activist Dolores Huerta. Councilmember, thank you for um, speaking with me, taking part in this interview during a very pivotal time for, I want to say Los Angeles, but uh, I think it seems like the world is a little bit on edge right now. You have been a council member in Los Angeles for over 12 years uh, of a very pivotal uh, district, which has even expanded uh, recently. In this sort of few months ago, we thought it was going to be a transitioning or post-pandemic, but it's still a pandemic era for Los Angeles, one of the largest economies in the world where so much is changing, what is your perspective in general about uh, what is happening in Los Angeles? Well, it's, it's been a tough time. Obviously, uh, COVID has been a, a difficult crisis and we haven't been able to get a high enough percentage of uh, the population vaccinated quickly enough to, to uh, reach any kind of herd immunity and, and eliminate it. So, it seems like our ongoing push has to be to get everybody vaccinated, eventually given the booster shot, um, which seems to provide especially uh, high protection for the current variant. We have to uh, push to increase the usage of masks where, where possible. And I was the one that first pushed for that in Los Angeles and convinced the mayor and introduced a motion on my own to, to make that happen. And I think that helped control the pandemic to some degree in LA uh, before we actually had the vaccination as, as a tool. Um, so that's been a, a tough issue, uh, which, which I've tried hard to lead on. I also did a, a, a piece of legislation requiring employers to give half a day off to get the shot and recover and an additional day to recover after that if necessary. So that concerns about the symptoms and being sick for a day um, didn't scare anyone off that couldn't afford to, to lose that time. Um, I've been very involved for years in trying to fight homelessness. I helped to uh, create the, the PATH program, which is a well-known nonprofit that now uh, houses about 2,500 people about 20 years ago, um, before the problem grew as exponentially as it has. And my focus has been on something that's been different than most of the council and most elected officials, which is what can we do that 
doesn't involve building more housing and doesn't involve leasing more housing, but is, is, is more preventative in a way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been pushing for years and we finally adequately funded this year an eviction protection program so that if people are unjustly served with an eviction notice, if they don't have representation, they'll usually still get evicted. But if they have an attorney, uh, if they have a, a, a real case and it's not a, a justifiable eviction, they'll usually win. Right. So it's a lot cheaper to keep people from being kicked out of their homes than to build a $700,000 HHH unit and provide services. Um, and it's also more humane and it's quicker. Um, and preferable. And preferable. So that's kind of been my angle. We also required a few units of affordable housing in a lot of large luxury buildings in the city, but then we didn't track them. So landlords might rent to somebody that needs it. They might rent to their nephew that doesn't show an income because they're going to college and they don't have a job. Um, They might just rent market rate because nobody's watching. So I pushed for years to get a database set up so we could track it, which we were originally told was impossible. But of course it's not, and we now have such a database. And uh, we're also trying to put together a list of people that actually need affordable housing or they could wind up on the street. So again, it's, it's a more preventative approach. And you know, I have several other ideas that I've been pushing for, and hopefully we'll focus on some of them because they all are quicker and cheaper and more humane. Um, and I think that should be the approach of the city. Because it's, you know, it's such a daunting task. Um, you know, California has 50% of the, the unhoused population and even if, if magically we have the budget to house everyone, there will be others that will come. So it's really a national problem, and it's a, na- I should say, national challenge to fix it. And I know that sometimes we, we want our council members or assembly members or state senators to just sort of, you know, snap and everything is, is taken care of, but it's, it is a very daunting task. I was going to ask you what some of the key challenges are in the city as we are, but I think you covered a lot of them uh, because you've been working on them for a long time, you know, including the, uh, the homelessness and, uh, and eviction and all of that. So I'm going to transition to sort of your next, your next step in public service, your candidate to become uh, a city controller for Los Angeles. Yes. And um, I think some people don't know what a city controller does. So before we get into specifics, if you would just sort of give us a little bit of a, an explanation of what a city controller does. Well, I think the key things, there are other things that the department does, but the elected city controller, uh, I think really focuses in a few areas. I think the primary one is finding efficiencies and rooting out waste and finding ways to save the city money so that we can, we can spend those on programs that we actually need rather than things that are, are steps that don't do anything for anyone. And an example of that, uh, years ago, uh, Wendy Gruel and I pushed through a change in, in how bills were paid because the city usually paid its bills early, 
because it used to pay them late and get uh, assessed penalties. So it started paying them early and they lost money on the float of money. So we decided that uh, we would pay bills exactly on time. I mean, we're in the computer age, we can do that. And just making that minor change, right. I think probably saves, I think we thought a million dollars, a little over a million dollars. Now, in a big city budget, a million dollars isn't much, but you save a few million here and a few million there, and it suddenly becomes real money, right. as they say. And some of the ideas out there can save a lot more than a million dollars. But that's the kind of thing. It, it, it doesn't do anyone any good to be paying the bills at the wrong time. Or nobody's losing anything, um, except we found a way to save money. Right. So there, there are dozens and dozens of ideas like that. And so that's one piece. The controller does policy audits. So the controller can look at departments and how well they're functioning and which functions are, are being performed better, which are problematic, and they might make some suggestions and also look at programs. So we probably have 20 different homeless programs. So I don't think anyone's really taken a look and compared them and said, all right, this is working, this is getting this many people into, into housing, uh, this is helping us build more housing, this one is not getting us anywhere. So that's the type of thing that uh, uh, the controller does. And the third important function, which has really been advanced dramatically by our current controller, Ron Galperin, is making information accessible. A lot of our financial information is accessible on the controller's dashboard and you can configure it and get different different kinds of information and uh, create graphs and different things from it so doing that and and advancing that is also an important uh, function i would say i have a, a little bit of a vision for that but i think the first two are the areas that i bring more to it and the reason I decided to run is really when I first got elected in 2009, we were in a huge recession and that we were talking about laying off four to 5,000 people. And I said, I, I'm, I'm a new council member, but I'm not gonna show up and let all these people be laid off. Right. So I, I really did lead the effort to fight the layoffs, but part of the way we did it was trying to find efficiencies so we would have more money that we weren't wasting and we could apply to city services and not have to lay people off. And some of those were implemented when we needed to. Some of them turned out to take years longer. So long past the crisis, um, I was pretty stubborn and I kept working on them. And some of them are even being implemented right now, 12 and a half years later. It's, it's sort of a natural progression. I've done it, it's almost been a hobby of mine on council. You know, how do we push these ideas through? How do we talk our colleagues into it um, and make them see the, the value and make department heads see the value? And it's something I'd like to continue doing and would be my main focus as, uh, as controller. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with council member Paul Koretz, who is also a candidate for LA City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. And you, you answered 
what was going to be my next question, which is, you know, you've been a beloved council member. Why are you putting yourself in this super high pressure? I mean, you already have a lot of high pressure on you as a council member, but going up to the next level, but then you answered that and, and that you, uh, you've already been doing this and you've had all these ideas and some of them you've passed and uh, uh, you It's sort of the less emotional, less visible side of things. Right. And I'm not someone that really likes being visible and likes the glory and right. likes to go, and go to a lot of ceremonial events. This is a job where you really can just dig in and do the work. Right. And it's not a sexy job. You don't see other elected officials, uh, you know, trying to elbow me out of the way because right. it's it's not very glamorous, but it's something that can do a, a tremendous amount of good for the city. Yeah, which is considering all the changes, we definitely need all hands kind of an approach to uh, Los Angeles's challenges. There's also the mayoral race and all of that. Uh, if uh, if people want to learn more about your your city controller race and how to get information and maybe contribute, et cetera, where, they can, where can they go? Well, we have a, a website. It's not fully developed yet, but it's, it's got some things on it. Um, and it's caretsforla.com. Caretsforla.com. Yes, and that four is spelled out. That's sometimes confusing. So caretsforla.com. Gotcha. Okay, caretz, F-O-R. LA.com. Okay, thank yeah. you for that. So I want to segue to your background. You are a, a big educator and, and a, uh, an advocate for um, Holocaust studies, Armenian genocide studies. You have been a great friend and a supporter of the Armenian community, some of whom are in your district. Uh, and I, I'm sure that you've sort of gone through the, the last few years, highs and the lows that has to do with the Armenian American community. You know, Los Angeles had recognized the Armenian genocide a long time ago, as had the state of California. But of course, earlier this year, um, uh, President Biden did. Um, but of Which course- Which uh, exciting and kind of a surprise after all these years, that was great. Yes, 106 years. Uh, but of course, last year we we witnessed this with this uh, genocidal assault on on the Armenians of Artsakh, as it's known to some people, Nagorno-Karabakh, by nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey, uh, and we it's almost like having PTSD. We're back to sort of re sort of re-witnessing what our great grandparents witnessed, perhaps. What is your general perspective on what happened and? Uh, what do you think about it? Well, it, it was just inexcusable and unnecessary for this whole conflict to have happened. But I'm thoroughly disgusted about the way that it happened. It's almost inconceivable to me that in, in the modern era that we would have this kind of warfare where people were cutting the ears off people as trophies and skinning them alive and doing things that, that you just wouldn't believe could be possible. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard. And it's, it's hard being Jewish and watching that because, I mean, we, we all say never again, but it doesn't mean just never again for the Jews. We don't want to see a genocide happen and especially an attempt to repeat a genocide that 
was so difficult to get recognized and has never been recognized by the perpetrators uh, and now are really taking that same step in Artsakh. I mean, it's, I, I talked to Paul Krikorian about it and it, it's so painful for him, but especially because he'd been to Artsakh, which I had never been to, and uh, he saw a, a park that he had seen uh, before this conflict and you know so much money and effort and community pride and now it was just taken over. It's been an issue that I've been focused on in the Armenian genocide for many years since I went to college and uh, first inadvertently took a class in Turkish history from someone who turned out to be a genocide denier and that outraged me once I understood uh, what was happening and I've been an advocate uh, ever since. And I did legislation uh, about 20 years ago in, in the state assembly to create uh, Holocaust and Armenian genocide and other genocide uh, teacher training. I think at the time we were in the middle of a fiscal crisis, so there wasn't money put into it and, and uh, I don't think it had the impact that, right. that I wanted except I got no one, not a single person complained about teacher training for the Holocaust, but I got tens of thousands of calls and emails from Turks saying, how dare you teach this? This genocide never happened. I couldn't believe it. I even had uh, an email from a friend of my father's um, and he, had, he died uh, over 40 years ago. So that was a long time ago. And, he said, your father would have never done this. And, uh, you know, he must be turning over in his grave. And I don't remember what I sent back to him, but essentially it would be, you son of a bitch, my father would be so proud. and You can't fool me. Was, was your dad's friend Turkish? I suspect he was, but I didn't know people as you know, their nationalities. I just knew them as, as people he'd yeah. worked with and become friends with. It's unfortunate that, uh, it's, uh, that it's still a necessity to educate the world about genocides. I mean, Armenian genocide is not the only one. Uh, 20th century, after Armenians, it was the Holocaust, and after Holocaust was Rwanda and Chile and, and Cambodia and Darfur and, and Which, on which and on. I, I did a... I did legislation at the state level to uh, divest from from the Sudan while while all, all of the genocide in Darfur was yeah. happening. Um, the the thing that makes me the most distressed is I feel a kinship with the Armenian community, especially as a as a Jew, and the fact that we went through the two great holocausts in world history, and. It's difficult because I don't think most Jews know the history of the Armenian relationship with Turkey and with Azerbaijan. And I think Israel sold Azerbaijan some, uh, some weapons, not for this conflict specifically. But I think there's always been a good relationship because Azerbaijan has treated its Jewish population uh, more kindly than any other Muslim country. So they view that as a positive, but they don't see the connection that they're also, you know, supporting the Turks and engaging in genocidal activities on their own. 
your support has been very meaningful. And that's probably the area where I've perhaps been the most impactful because I've communicated with Israel and they know I'm a you know very out there supporter of Israel. Right. And and it, it was heard, so I know they paid attention. Now whether whether it changed anything or not, I don't know. But that's important. But they need to know that there are Jews in, in American government places that support you know support the Armenian people and support Yeah, to, many. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with council member Paul Koretz, who is also a candidate for L.A. City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. There there are so many um, Jewish people that have, um, from uh, Ambassador Morgenthau, the first major advocate and activist for the Armenian community trying to stop genocide to Franz Werfel, who, who wrote the famous book, 40 Days of Musadar, about genocide, who was a, a Dutch Jew, to Raphael Lemkin, who was a Polish Jew, who coined the term genocide, uh, mm-hmm. partly uh, due to the Armenian genocide, to um, Steven Spielberg, uh, including the Armenian Genocide as part of the Shoah Foundation, mm-hmm. and on and on and on. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, I think it was easier with the Jewish population because the Holocaust survivors were younger at the time. So, there were more of them. It was probably harder to capture uh, uh, the actual stories from the actual people that lived oh, through it. Sure. But they were sure. able to do that to some degree, which is great. I, I actually wrote a, uh, an editorial a few years ago. I titled it Jews, colon, Armenians, Other Cousins. And uh, I talked about how uh, the Greeks are always considered cousins to the Armenians because of our shared trauma with the Turkish. And the French are considered cousins because of France's unwavering support for the Armenians and how they came to are rescued during the genocide at Musadagh. And then I go into uh, the kinship of, of the Jewish community worldwide with, uh, with the Armenians. I actually went to the, the Holocaust Memorial in Armenia when I was there in May. I went there a couple of times this year. So yes, your, your support uh, is, is super important. And, uh, and for Artsakh too, is people's right to self-determination I'm glad that uh, you know Los Angeles has recognized the independent Republic of Artsakh. Uh, I don't honestly know how, who, and how that was voted. I mean, I know it was about seven or eight years ago, but I suspect that from what you've said, you recognize Artsakh, you you support Artsakh and and the people. And I still haven't been there, so I, I know there's a, a trip planned at some point uh, and. Uh, when that happens, I'll, I'll join it. I think that would be a special thing. I, I went there as an adult for the first time, not to Artsakh, Armenia, in 2018, and I fell in love. I'd only been there when I was three once. <laughs> so, a council member, before we go, is there anything uh, you'd like to add to? Ah, I'm trying to think of the big issues we've faced in LA. I, I might add public safety to that, mm-hmm. and that's been an issue that's had some controversy. You know, after you know, George Floyd's terrible death, uh, I think uh, every police department in every city you know, engaged in some introspection about uh, 
uh, you know, what the next step is. And you know, there was an effort to eliminate law enforcement in Los Angeles, a proposal to cut 95% of the budget, which is actually more than 100% because we'd still have to pay for the pensions of uh, officers that had served. Uh, I was strongly opposed to that from the beginning, honestly. Uh, which doesn't mean that the department doesn't need reform and that there aren't ideas to uh, uh, reduce use of force and you know, handle every racial group equally and appropriately. But I think we, we don't want to leave ourselves uh, vulnerable to the incredible rise in violent crime. Right. So in my district, I found a way to focus on the Melrose area, which for a while was a hotbed of, of robberies especially. You know, we had video that was shown all over the country of people being robbed at outdoor dining. So we really focused resources, worked and brainstormed with the LAPD and other departments and came up with an approach that worked. And actually we've had no robberies in Melrose, the Melrose area for two weeks, which is Probably the first time that's happened in anyone's memory, which right. has really been effective. Uh, so I think we want to combine reforms that uh, you know reduce any remaining problems that uh, exist in the department, but at the same time we we want to be their partners and protect public safety. And the other thing we've been working on with LAPD has been eliminating ghost guns, which uh, are guns that bypass the background check system, mm -hmm. don't have any identifying serial numbers so they can be used in crime and not be a, a, an asset to law enforcement to find the perpetrators, all because they're sent in pieces. So they're mailed in a kit. If you can assemble a gun, which is actually pretty simple to do with instructions, then even if you're legally not allowed to have one, you can have one. That's kind of frightening. And so the last four years, the number of them in LA has gone up 400%. We're now at uh, a point where uh, about a third of all guns used in crimes and recovered by LAPD are these ghost guns. Uh, so far, far they've been used in, uh, last I checked, I think 24 or 25 homicides in LA this year. Um, and every year the problem is growing. So I authored uh, with Paul Krikorian, who I've worked with on, on gun violence measures for many decades, um, legislation to, to ban the sale and possession and transfer of these guns and get a handle on, on that public safety threat as well. It's a balancing act. You know, you can't just take all funding away from law enforcement and then complain that uh, you don't feel safe and that you see these crimes happening, which lately it's been, it's been a, a surge in, throughout all of LA County. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask you because, again, I, I don't know the vote, but I, I know that listeners are going to want to know, do you recognize the independent of Artsakh as a council member? Oh, of course. Okay. And I, I believe that that's true of every member of our city council. Um, I think we've been unanimously in, in support and trying to uh, defend them in any way that we can help as a, 
as a city. I mean, we're distant from the conflict, but we're one of the you know, major cities in the world where we've been voted by some magazines as the most watched city in the world. Yep. So when we take an action legislatively, often it's replicated throughout the county, throughout the state, sometimes Absolutely. throughout the country and even beyond. Uh, so hopefully our, our strong support will resonate beyond our borders. It is. It's, I watch the reaction of the Azerbaijan government and their talking heads and their sort of you know, PR and all of that. And uh, I see their reaction when things come out of LA as well as West Hollywood. I, was, um, I got the city of West Hollywood uh, to recognize uh, Artsakh formally with Seppi Shine, my, who's a friend of mine, Seppi sponsored it and uh, uh, Mayor Horvath co-sponsored it and it passed earlier this year. So, in and, a and I don't know if you know, I was on the West Hollywood City Council also for 12 years. Of course you were. And I kind of started that approach. We, we made some landmark changes on smoking regulations, for instance, and uh, we did them jointly timed with LA at my instigation and some other cities so that it would be a regional, regional ban. And that really helped state legislation pass and it's really gone worldwide since then. West Hollywood has been at the cutting edge, for lack of a better term, a leading in, uh, city in so many ways from plastic ban to not selling fur anymore to... I was gonna say a lot of animal issues, yeah. which I helped really start as yes. the first animal cruelty focused council yes. member there. Um, we did a lot of gun, gun violence and gun control measures yes. um, where we were, we were the first and L.A. followed. Um, you were a council member in 2003 for West Hollywood, were you not? No, I was already gone. You were gone. Okay. I was already in the state legislature. But okay. in 1989, I passed the first assault weapons ban in a city that hadn't had a massacre first. Right. Just because it made sense. You didn't right. need assault weapons right. on the street. Yes. And that helped other cities that were in similarly situated pass bans and helped state law pass and Dianne Feinstein's federal legislation. Yes, you definitely have a strong connection with the city of West Hollywood and the LGBTQ community and Armenian community. Uh, council member, thank you. Those listening can go to uh, Coretz for LA, that's Coretz, F-O-R-L-A.com uh, to find out about your, your uh, objectives, your initiatives to be City of Los Angeles's controller and to get more information and contribute and volunteer and to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much really for having me. really appreciate it. That was my interview with Councilmember Paul Coretz, who is also a candidate for LA City controller for next year being 2022 election. Uh, I interviewed Councilmember Koretz for my documentary feature film, Motherland, which will come out next year. And I wanted to share part of that interview with you because uh, Councilmember Koretz has been uh, such a champion of very progressive causes uh, on, on many fronts for the longest time. And uh, I've definitely been a fan and I'm very grateful for this interview and I hope to chat with you again soon, uh, council member, or perhaps at the time it would be uh, LA City Controller. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, 
without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.